An example of a more polite era, Emma, 2020, demonstrates the pitfall of pride, the dangers of leisure, and the consequences of a loose tongue. Are you just watching? Episode 102, Emma, 2020. Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And today we're talking about a rated PG movie that came out. It's a remake. The uh, I think they've had not only the 1996 production that starred Gwyneth Paltrow, there's also been a, a TV series on it. The source material is a book by Jane Austen, and it's been had multiple uh, versions of it out there. And uh, it's a comedy. I think a lot of people think it's just a plain chick flick, but it is actually a comedy. This one is a certain kind of humor that I guess you kind of have to, uh, it has to appeal to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. I myself have seen the original Emma, uh, well, not the original Emma, but the 1996 production of Emma, and uh, it's actually a favorite movie. I've seen it multiple times. I was kind of excited to see this remake. I was not entirely sure I what it was going to be. And I took a friend of mine who is a big Jane Austen fan to the preview with me, and I think she liked it. And I convinced my co-host, Tim Martin, here uh, to watch <laughs> a movie that he had no intention of seeing for any other reason. And now we get to hear what he thought of it. I just want to point out how this is evidence of how I've matured over the years. Because, you know, when I was in my early 20s, you would have had to drag me kicking and screaming to see a movie like this. And now I just kicked. <laughs> it was a and it was a very light kick too. Yeah, it it was. Actually, uh as uh, you and I had discussed, I have no prior exposure to Jane Austen other than to know that she is a 19th century author uh and that she wrote Pride, Prejudice and Zombies. Among many great classics. <laughs> no. no, no, no. You got that one. Thank you. Got that title wrong. <laughs> oh, just, it wasn't the zombie one. Darn it. No, sorry. <laughs> it's I. You know, I'm familiar with the titles of her work, but I have never read any of them. So mm -hmm. I, I literally came in with a much more academic mindset than I do with many or even most movies that I see. I mean, it's I didn't go into Endgame with an academic mindset. I I actually went in Endgame is one of the fan. few that I got to see twice. Yeah. I saw it mm -hmm. as a fan first and then as a uh, a reviewer. I gotta say, I was very pleased with what I saw. I thought that the the movie was really good. The the comedy of the movie you had mentioned that the that you really have to enjoy that kind of comedy and and I do even more so in the last um decade or two mm -hmm. uh, than before because real comedy writing seems to be dying out to me, yeah, if you can't do most comedies today they earn an r rating just by the language alone mm-hmm. And not only did this movie not have any, um, at least modern, uh, <laughs> crude language, it did the comedy without crude humor, which is a real accomplishment in my book. Mm -hmm. No potty humor, no bathroom humor that seems much more commonplace nowadays. The humor was all based around the... With situational humor. Yeah. A lot of the humor in Emma is based on the simple absurdity of the characters. It, mm -hmm. it takes the stereotypes and it tweaks the humor of the stereotype without tweaking the annoyingness of the stereotype. Yeah. My particular favorite uh, character in, in this production, at least, you know, the only <laughs> Austin One production you know. I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was uh, Bill Nighy's character of uh, Mr. Woodhouse, Emma's father. Mm -hmm. Just the way he plays it so straight-faced and the way that his two servants play off of him just had mm -hmm. me laughing out loud. 
And I would, I would admit that he's actually one of the things I like about this Emma more than the previous Emma. Mm. And there, there are certain cast portrayals in this movie that are better than the Gwyneth Paltrow 1996 Emma. There are some things I liked better about that 1996 Emma that it started out with a narration with, you know, like somebody speaking the lines that are on the screen in this one. Mm. And I liked the narrative uh, tie-in. It actually tied scenes together with narration, where this one tied scenes together or did transitions musically, which yeah. was different and it was interesting, but it was different. And but then there were certain portrayals that I liked better. Uh, Mr. Woodhouse was a good was a good one. In fact, that the situational humor in this version of Emma was far superior to the original. The lines were almost all the same because they were dealing with the same source material. But yeah. if you weren't paying attention, the, the the screen content, the production value was better on this one, which, you know, it's been Makes sense. 20 yeah. years. So, <laughs> so, yeah. Speaking of the music, I do want to play a little bit of the music before we get too deep into our discussion. Uh, the music is by Isabel, Isabel Waller-Bridge and David Schweitzer. And they also had a lot of vocal music that was produced by a variety of modern musical groups that you, yeah. that do period music. <laughs> I've, I've actually uh, I've heard of the ones the the ones that did the the hymn, um, mm -hmm. the Cambridge Singers. I've actually heard them before. I, I I've heard recordings of them before. Well, the Cambridge sing Singers did "Oh Wally Wally," but the hymn was actually done. The, and the hymn we're talking about is How Firm a Foundation. That was done mm -hmm. by a group called the Carnival Band with a guest oh, artist of okay. Maddie Pryor. And they are, I looked them up, they are a group that do uh, like 15th and 16th century uh, folk music. And they are considered, uh, they kind of do it as a comedic kind of thing. They said their uh, Facebook thing says that they do it in an informal and humorous spirit of medieval and renaissance carnival so they don't take the music seriously when they sing it ah okay which i do want to discuss later but now i just want to play a little bit of the the actual score which is a very uh light-hearted it whimsical score it kind of yeah. fits the the comedic nature of the of the story very well <laughs> so hmm. let's play a little bit of it here Okay, so the music, I think you had said in your notes, the music was one of the things you liked about the movie. Yeah, I, I thought it was well matched. Um, one of those, you, you know, we've talked before how music that you don't notice is actually, um, is not necessarily a bad thing in a movie. Yeah, um, yeah. If it, if it creates the right atmosphere, then it's good. This one, I thought, went a step beyond creating the atmosphere and actually added more significant value to the to the movie experience. Yes. And it really felt period. Yeah, it made the transitions very uh, seamless from going from one scene to the next. Now, the big thing that I want to talk about, and this has already been a bit of a buzz among the women folk that I know on Facebook who were <laughs> real excited about this movie. This movie is rated PG, but there's a scene in it that just seems incredibly out of place for a PG movie. And... I'm still, for the life of me, not entirely sure how it got in there and why it was in there. And I actually kind of warned Tim before he went to see it that there was a scene in there that we were going to have to discuss. Yeah. Uh, this this movie contains a a scene, a full full um how you put this, a full backside nudity of a male. <laughs> yeah. And. I, we have seen that in movies before when we when we talked about the movie The Martian, they had a similar scene, uh, but it was PG-13. So I could yeah. sort of get it, you know, figure and out it had a purpose, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, it, it served a purpose in The Martian to show how emaciated he had become. This one didn't serve a purpose, and I'm not entirely sure the justification for putting it in there, and it completely threw me out of the movie when I was watching it. I was kind of like, oh, what am I seeing? And why is that there? 
<laughs> I started uh, like writing in my notes. Nudity <laughs> made me jealous. Uh, just, but that's because I'm old. Now the the girl that I went to see this movie with, I commented it to her when we were sitting through the credits at the end of the movie. I was like, I can't believe they stuck nudity in there, and she's like, Well, it was to show the, you know, the the difference in the classes. You know that this you know, little lord who's very mm. well off could just walk around naked and is in all this, and I'm like, uh, Yeah, yeah I don't right. buy it. <laughs> I I don't buy that. Sorry. <laughs> So be warned, for those of you who have not seen this movie yet and who might have been wanting to go see it and are listening to this podcast because you know the the story of Emma or whatever, uh, this movie does contain a very quick scene of back of a man, naked man, and it's inappropriate, and I don't know why they stuck it in there. But if, the rest of the movie can, is very clean. If I can put on my conspiracy theory hat for a moment. Okay. I think they put that scene in as a a nod of thanks or a reward, as you will, to the target audience of mature women who would go to the theater to see a Jane Austen story. I think that's that how they see nudity. That- yeah, exactly. Yeah. I remember it, back when Game of Thrones first started on on HBO, I was excited because I had read the books. And mm-hmm. uh, was looking forward to seeing the story play out on the screen. And by the second episode, I was like, what in the world is this <laughs> crap? You should have known from the channel it was on. <laughs> well, remember, Game of Thrones was the first one that really started beating you over the head at, on HBO, uh-uh. at least. No. Was there one no. before that? Oh, yeah. True Blood. Oh, oh! I never, I, I don't think I've ever seen an episode of that. Mm, you don't anyway, need to. yeah, it's not on my list. Um, <laughs> but I, I think Hollywood thought that they were, they were either putting it, dangling it out there as bait, or putting it in there as a reward, or both. But how did it get past the Raiders? Because nudity does not belong in a PG movie. <laughs> That's what I want to know. It, they probably got past the Raiders the same way that your friend argued, that it was serving mm-hmm. the purpose of showing the class distinctions or showing, you know, the it was showing that he had three servants who were dedicated to getting him uh, changed and, undressed. And, that he, yeah. and that he would have to change when he comes in from the strenuous activity of riding a horse to the strenuous activity of uh, walking across a field. <laughs> yeah. So it's I could see them pitching that, and I I can see today's censors buying it too. Yeah, I I don't know that that really bugged me, and I think it it from the comments that I've seen, at least from my Christian friends, it it is a big negative to the movie, and it's going to uh, I, most of the people, most of the women that I saw commenting on it were like, "Well, go back to the older version of Emma. We'll never watch that one again." So they they mm. did turn off quite a bit of their audience with that because for other otherwise the movie and the story is fairly clean so there's yeah the to to have thrown something like that in the movie where there's no language there's you know it's otherwise a very clean movie i i I just i i don't understand it i really don't but anyway we don't want to beat the dead horse on this but we will apply a little scripture to it how about that (laughs) First John 2.16 says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And that just goes to show, especially if my theory happens to be right, um, how the world is, you know, stepping further and further away from what we consider to be right and to be pure and to be um, worthwhile, you know? Yeah. They they definitely have their own agendas, and they they think they know what the audience wants, and that's just <laughs> unfortunately very sad. So, have you anything else you want to talk about before we go into a theme discussion? Well, just a quick question: the book is pretty old. Do we have to worry about spoilers? <laughs> Well, I don't know that it's a matter of discussion now because we're going to get ready and go on into oh, spoilers. Yeah, good point. So, 
it it shouldn't be an issue. But yeah, I agree with you. This is the movie has been made before. The book is old in the public domain, so I, I don't see that there is a too too much of a concern. <laughs> you know, it's it. I I am a little disappointed that the the one that you like better has Gwyneth Paltrow in it because I can't stand her. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, I mean, I only stomached her in the Iron Man movies, <laughs> but uh, it's, I'd be interested in seeing now how they differ. Yeah. Well, the Emma character is not somebody you necessarily are supposed to like, so that might actually work to the benefit of the story for you. Oh, that's a good point. And she must, it, it was 96, so she would have been much younger, I think. Yes, she is much younger. I do like the actress that plays Emma in this movie. It's uh, she she did a really good job, and she really fit the the role. She really met the the definition of vapid in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked her appearance as well. I think she fit the appearance of the role a lot better than Gwyneth Paltrow did. But mm -hmm. her name is Anya Taylor Joy. I don't believe I've seen her. If I have seen her somewhere else, I didn't know I was seeing her, so it was kind of an introduction. Yeah, it's, I was looking up some of the other actors, and it seems like they're mostly independent movies and stuff like that. It's, I want to yeah. say uh, the only two I recognized were Bill Nighy and Rupert Graves. One of the things that I commented on to my, my friend when we came out of the movie was they kind of swap the appearances of the two male leading men for Emma's affections, uh, Churchill and Mr. Knightley. In the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, uh, Frank Churchill is a blonde with long hair, and Mr. Knightley is a very clean-cut brunette. and. Mm. Tall, dark, and handsome in all, all ways of, of – and they kind of swapped those characteristics in this movie, which I thought was kind of funny. I wonder if tall, dark, and handsome originated with uh, with Jane Austen. <laughs> it would be an interesting thing to research. Well, that that will conclude our initial reactions. We'll go straight into themes. And I do want to talk – obviously, the first theme is going to be, I think, the biggest uh, point about Emma. And it's very interesting because right before we started recording, I posted on our Facebook group um, a chance for people to give their thoughts. And uh, one of our listeners who actually, I think, only listens to our PG-rated movie reviews, Cherry Fields, commented that she had read the book and didn't like Emma because she was not a very likable person. And she had read yeah. Sense and Sensibility, much more appreciated the characters in Sense and Sensibility, and so or, and Pride and Prejudice as well. Emma is a different sort of movie or a different sort of story from those other two. Those were more plain chick flicks. And mm -hmm. this one is a comedy. And so there is a big difference in the character. And Emma, you start out thinking that she's going to be a very likable character, but the further you get in, you realize that she's very conniving and uh, <laughs> mani manipulative, and she represents probably all the, the bad that is in a person who lives at leisure and ha does not have to uh, account for her existence in any other way than to just fill her time with amusement. And because she fills her time with amusement, she tends to treat the people around her like pawns on a chessboard. Yeah. She, and she sees them as instruments for her own amusement. She really right. is. She really is a, a very self-centered, uh, selfish person, at least at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. She does have some growth as a character throughout, and that's what makes the movie work, because if she didn't have that growth, uh, I think the comedy in it, would would fall flat because you can no longer laugh at it. You'd just be hating her more <laughs> through the whole thing. Yeah. And the, I, I have encountered characters like that, particularly mm -hmm. in books. Yeah. And when she's the, the heroine of the story, you don't necessarily want to uh, see a character like that, that you just, you, you can't understand, you know, where they're coming from or where they're going. It just makes no sense that she yeah. would be the heroine of the story. In this case, 
uh, she has a learning moment in this in which she lets slip between her lips a verbal jab that would have been better kept in her mind. But the fact that she spoke what she was thinks a lot, because that's what you get from this movie is, is she or the story really is that she thinks a lot of really bad things about people, but she is polite enough that she never says them out loud. And in this instance at a picnic with a group of uh, like-minded young people, you know, entertaining themselves, she lets fly a verbal jab at a character who is of, I guess, less social status than her. She's an, she's an old maid who has no prospects and lives a, a very meager means. And she is a, a talkative person who says a lot of inane things. And Emma yeah. says something that is very rude. And Mr. Knightley actually tells her so. That was badly done, Emma. You know, you had no no purpose whatsoever in, in saying something like that. And then Emma's response was, she probably didn't even understand it. And and he's like, oh, yeah, she understood it and she took it and it hurt. Yeah. And you had no business saying such hurtful things. This line was a one line that I gasped at in the movie. And I think you're meant to. Yeah, you're meant to. I mean, that's the reaction yeah. that you're supposed to have. I think that that's because it's kind of the turning point of the movie and it's the climax. I mean, in a movie where there's no action and no, no, you know, enemy that you're fighting or anything yeah. like that, the, the humor is subtle, but also the climax is subtle. And this picnic where she lets slip between her lips a thing that should never have been said out loud, let alone, I mean, she shouldn't have thought it, to be honest. So it is the climax of the movie. And yeah. that's why that, that elicits that emotional reaction. You remember from uh, from grade school or or middle school English how they talked about the the four different types of plots: uh, man versus nature, man versus man, man versus himself. Mm -hmm. I didn't know it going in, and uh, really, you only you only see it on retrospect. Uh, but this really was a movie about man versus himself. Mm -hmm. As Emma grew through a, a layer of immaturity. Right. And she really had, I mean, she was the pampered younger daughter of a man of means. And she had no, and it sounds like her governess, she didn't have a mother to, you know, dictate to her a certain behavior. She had a governess that was at her mercy, to be honest. And so even though she was friends with her governess, I, I would suspect that that would dictate her governess to be very protective of, of her yeah. instead of more of an authority figure. And and you see that actually because Mrs. Weston, her her former governess, always defends her. She never says a foul word about her, and mm -hmm. it's it's one of those situations where she's never had anybody except for Mister Knightley to ever you know punish her, you know, to bring her to task for things that she said wrong or things that she does wrong. It's interesting because Mr. Knightley is the person in, in this movie who is constantly taking her to task over yeah. everything that she does. Yeah, I, did, I didn't realize that. But as you mentioned, it, it's clear her father didn't have the wherewithal yeah. to hold her responsible for anything. And yeah. the servants definitely wouldn't have. No, because they were at her mercy, really. Yeah. So she needed she needed somebody in her life to tell her to teach her, you know, good from bad to to help her understand where she was wrong. And in this instance where she speaks so rashly, there are a lot of scripture about the tongue and <laughs> I'm one of those people who have been known to say things in the spur of the moment and you know open <sighs> you mouth and sore foot and and instantly wish i could grab those words and stuff them back behind my teeth because they should never have left my mouth and i have long since thought that it's very nice to be able to record and edit what we say but i wish <laughs> i wish i could do that through all my whole life because i have been known to say things and then wish i could take them back in fact this morning i got caught saying something uh, by we have this uh, task at work where people overhear things and they put it in this task as a, I overheard the task is actually called I <laughs> okay. overheard. So 
everybody's eavesdropping on everybody. And it's supposed to be humorous. And this morning, I was talking to some some people in my cubicle about the fact that schools have closed because of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And I I made some comment about, I don't even remember exactly what I said, but I said something to the order of that, now that the schools were closed, what were people going to do with their children? Because, you know, schools like the the babysitter, the greatest babysitter. And somebody overheard that and put it on this task. Well, then a couple of mo- mothers that work at in my department saw it and they both posted, that's not what I send my kids to school for. And I, and I realized they took that personally and it was not intended that way. And so I had to yeah. apologize. And so I am been very well known for saying things without thinking about the consequences. So I can, to some extent, I can sympathize with Emma in that situation because I have been known to do it. And I have been the brunt of, you know, verbal jabs like that. So I can sympathize with Miss Bates as well. So for me, it's always a matter of going for the latching on to something that's funny in my head Mm -hmm. and trying to get it out there for others to appreciate it and or me. (laughs) Yeah. And more often than I care to admit it backfires. Yeah. You don't understand how other people are going to hear it and how how they're going to take it. And you meant it to be funny and it comes out as an insult. You know, all kinds of things like that. Well, a long time ago, I memorized the book of James. I don't quite have it anymore because I didn't rehearse it like I should. But uh, one of the Mm -hmm. reasons that I memorized the book of James was because in James 3, almost the entire chapter is about taming the tongue. And I won't read the whole thing because you can... Uh, go read James 3 for yourself. But let's start with verse 5. So yep. also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set, is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And that is James 3, 5 through 8. I mean, it's recognized by scripture how terrible uh, the tongue is and and how we misuse it. And the, this chapter goes on to say, how can sweet and bitter things come out of the same place? I mean, it's it's bad. <laughs> yeah. James is the best place in the New Testament where it's where it's spoken of. But um, I mean, Proverbs has a recurring theme about holding the tongue. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, There's much of Proverbs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, uh, it's framed as a father passing along wisdom to a son. Right. And uh, uh, I had pulled two of them out. There is one, uh, Proverbs twelve eighteen. there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, uh, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And uh, the other one was whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue uh, keeps himself out of trouble. I mean, that that one especially, you know, applies to Emma, because if she just kept her mouth shut, she would have stayed out of so much trouble. (laughs) And, you know, it was made worse by her ignorance, because when you're watching the movie and the line is delivered, you know, the camera immediately goes back to Mrs. Smith's face. And she clearly... Well, it's Miss Bates, actually. Oh, Bates. Thank you. Uh, She clearly understood the entirety of the insult. The second it was uttered, yeah, and uh, and as you pointed out before, uh, Emma says and tries to say in her own defense, she probably didn't even understand what I meant. Yeah, which just lowered Emma like six more notches. Yeah, <laughs> and and you could tell, you know, from the way the movie is staged, and this entire scene happens in the in the other movie too, because like I said, it's an important climax, so. It's almost word for word the same in both movies, both versions of the story. And, you know, you can see as soon as she says it that she realizes she shouldn't have said it out loud. But she she doesn't know where to go with that, you know? Yeah, it's, it's she doubles down by trying to defend it. Yeah. Uh, I, I really expected her to, to break down and, and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I said that out loud. 
Instead, she has to wait for Mr. Knightley to take her to task and then, you know, go later with an apology. Yeah. Although I understand that it was a different time, but I am a little disappointed that she doesn't actually say, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) At least on screen. She might in the book. Yeah. But she brings a basket, you know, a a provisions basket to the home, but uh, the, the whole apology part is missing. Yeah. The one Proverbs that uh, that I wanted to make sure to mention was Proverbs 15.1. Uh, Gentle answer turns away to anger, but, a har- but harsh words stir up wrath. Mm-hmm. Which is really uh, a proverb that I keep, I try to keep in the forefront of my mind, particularly at work. I don't do such a good job with it at home. <laughs> yeah, it is hard. It is hard because, and and especially with social media, it's so hard to just like shut down that initial reaction of of somebody misunderstanding you or taking you out of context or whatever, yeah. and then you want to you want to shoot back, and it doesn't work. As Christians, it's okay to defend yourself, but it's the tone in which you defend yourself, and and sometimes it might be wiser to just let God fight your battles for you because some of those things are just not winnable. Yeah. Particularly over that format. Right. Right. So that, of course, is, I think, the biggest part of this movie. The biggest theme is the whole idea of guarding your tongue and, and being wise in the way you speak and the wise, and wise in the way you deal with your friends. Because, like, the, the underlying story of this is that she is considers herself a matchmaker. And she thinks that she mm-hmm. matched her governess with you know, uh, Mr. Weston and got them to see notice each other and get married. And so she takes credit for things that were probably had nothing to do with her anyway. And then she she turns around and tries to manipulate a, a young, vulnerable girl that she decides to befriend. And she sets her expectations higher than they should be because this girl is basically an orphan going to a, you know, like a boarding school. And she really has none of the social standing. She she doesn't even come close to Emma's social standing. And so Emma is is setting her sights higher than is actually good for her because no man of a certain standing would take her in that actually, society. Let me ask a question about this because I I didn't realize until the end of the movie that um Harriet did not know who her father Father was. was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did they, in the book, is it clear that she is that much lower social standing? I or in the other movie, is, maybe? I believe it is. It's always set up as being that she is, you know, a young woman of uncertain means. So you don't really know. And I think Emma is assuming a lot about her based on her demeanor and also on her wishful thinking, because she has set it on her sights to get Mr. Elton a bride. Um, mm-hmm. That is her next matchmaking. And so she's looked around and go, oh, she looks like she would work. And then befriends her and attempts to actually manufacture uh, something between Mr. Elton and Miss Smith. And the odd thing about that, obviously, is the love triangle that's going on in Emma's own life, which is another one of the you know underlying themes in this movie. She is completely oblivious to the fact that Mr. Elton likes her. So, Yeah. <laughs> and she is the only one oblivious to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Because she doesn't consider Mr. Elton to be of her social status. So there's a lot of pride going on in this, in this whole story of the different, you know, which level of society you're at and, and what that means to who you can pursue and... It's kind of, I guess, mind-boggling for people in our generation and in our country of our nationality to even understand how that social status works because we have a little bit of social status here in the United States, but it's not so hard-drawn, you know, like in Mm -hmm. nobility versus, you know, the working class versus the poor. Right. There are still cultures where social status is as significant or more so as uh, in 19th century England like that. It's, India comes to mind. Yeah. In India, it's actually 
getting worse because the I don't remember if he's the president or the prime minister. I think he's Prime Minister Modi. He is uh, elevating the uh, the Hindu above all the other religions. So he's giving them priority and actually taking rights away from other religions. Mm-hmm. It's actually worse for Muslims than it is for Christians, but Christians are really starting to suffer in India. Yeah, it's even hard for those that are taking mission trips into that area. Yeah. But back to the movie, the yeah. the issue with the pride is that she has reached in her own mind a certain level where she thinks that she is capable of, of playing puppet master with people's lives. And, and it really is devastating for Harriet. I mean, Harriet goes through some very hot, massive highs and lows in her emotional life because of this chess game that, that Emma is playing with her affections. And Emma, there's actually a, a, a scene in there where Harriet's asking for Emma's advice on how to answer a farmer who had given her a proposal <laughs> for marriage. And Emma's like, oh, I wouldn't dare to advise. You know, that's not my place. And you should choose what makes you happy. And you can see Harriet, you know, well, I am almost entirely, completely decided to, and then she kind of waits and looks at Emma like, okay, yeah. what is it I've decided to do? So yeah, she's she's um, manipulating people. And and it brings her to a, a pretty deadly fall because she ends up in a carriage by herself, Emma does, with Mr. Elton and finds out all of a sudden that Mr. Elton has designs on her and couldn't care less about Harriet Smith. So I would say that is a pretty desperate fall because she has absolutely no interest in Mr. Elton at all. The Bible says a lot about pride as well, and much in the same vein as it does about watching your tongue. It's yeah, it's funny. Funny how, you know, the stuff that was important to Jane Austen to point out was the same stuff that was mm-hmm. in the Bible to point out. Yeah. There were there were actually two elements of this pride theme uh, that I thought would be worth discussing, and and clearly the first one is uh, Emma's very mistaken pride in her accomplishments. Uh, but the second one was the idea that she thinks she knows, you know, what's best for other people, mm-hmm. even when she uh, <clears throat> she considers herself above them in station. She feels like that gives her the authority to determine the the heart and mind of the of the people around her, and that's a really dangerous kind of pride. That's that's like a politician's pride. <laughs> that or you know trying to be like a almost like a god, you know, like manipulating the people over you because you know know better than they do somehow. Yeah, exactly. And they didn't even have emojis to express this kind of thing. <laughs> So, yeah, it's Proverbs. <laughs> yes. Always always go back to Proverbs, right? Definitely. Uh, we've got two uh, two from Proverbs. Why don't you take the, the first one? Okay, yeah. Pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. And that's Proverbs 16, 18, which, like I said, she sets herself up several times to fall pretty hard in this movie. And that's where she, I mean, it's a learning experience for her. Yeah. One of the things I liked about the movie was that the fall really felt like a free fall. Mm-hmm. And, and keep in mind, you know, I nothing, I knew nothing about the story. I, I didn't you were know what to expect. Things. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> I was. And, you know, she has this scene at the picnic where she realizes the the injury that she's caused. Then it goes into yet another instance of her thinking oh i'll i'll help out this romantic liaison and she is completely misconstruing the entire situation again mm-hmm. and uh she makes things even worse for herself and that kind of free-falling destruction i thought was really well done because it had consequences for the characters yeah and really really conveyed the uh really the daft-headedness of Emma that that she was being so blind to all of this. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But uh, another one uh, that we had picked out was a fool's way is right in his own mind and excuse me, in his own eyes. But whoever listens to counsel is wise. And uh, Emma in on a number of occasions in the movie completely disregards the wise counsel of, of those around her, including Mr. Knightley. Mm-hmm. The only, as a matter of fact, I want to say the only time in the movie she listens to counsel is from her father, isn't it? After the whole insult thing. I think she listens to Mr. Knightley, but she doesn't. She acts upon what he tells her, but he does. I don't uh, think yeah. she it concedes to him that she's that she took his point. <laughs> well, yeah, and and I was wrong by saying the whole movie because she does grow, and uh, yeah. at the you know the big conversation scene at the very end, she's clearly giving Mister Knightley's feedback its due, <laughs> yeah, which she had not done before. It was right. all banter to her before that, and and now it was feedback. She actually said at one point in a conversation is that Mister Knightley never always finds fault with me, so she just took it as you know he's like this older brother who's always finding fault with me, and she just never. It, it was just part of you know their interactions, and yeah, she didn't take it as legitimate criticism that she needed to take and and grow from until the end. That reminds me, I I. Did not get until the very near the very end of the movie that they were actually sister and brother in law mm-hmm. to each other. Yeah, her sister married his brother. <laughs> yeah, there was there was a line where not so much brother and sister as it would be inappropriate, and yeah. I was like, "What?" what? <laughs> <laughs> as a matter of yeah. fact, I think I even turned to my wife and said, "What is she talking about?" <laughs> and then. Uh, then my wife pointed out the last names. <laughs> anyway. Oh, yeah. So there was one other – the the basis of Emma's pride is that uh, she feels like she knows the people around her. When the audience, you know, it's clear to the viewers that she is – Putting her own – Clueless. Own, yeah, she's <laughs> – yeah. Superimposing her own thoughts and feelings on other people – and assuming that they think and feel the way she thinks they think and feel. Yeah. And she's completely wrong. Yeah. And uh, there are a number of scriptures that talk about how God knows some, the heart of man. But the the one that I wanted to grab out was 1 Corinthians 2.11. For who knows a person's thoughts except his spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Yeah. Which it, it really just shows that... Uh, to other people, the thoughts of people are intended to be mystery. Right. Uh, as much as, you know, God's thoughts are, are completely indiscernible to us. I think we should use what we know of other people's thoughts as a form of empathy, not necessarily a form of manipulation. And I think that that's the yeah, difference. Exactly. And she, she could have been empathetic for Miss Smith's uh, social status and her needs without having to... F- to meddle with her affections. And I think that that Mm -hmm. that's where we take it too far is when we assume things about other people and then use those things to manipulate them. And that the Emma was completely wrong. I mean, she could have been empathetic for the situation and been a good friend to her, which she was. I mean, she, she could have been a terrific friend for Harriet Smith, a woman who, really had very little prospects and to have someone of, of Emma's social standing, take interest in her and help her along was amazing and, and beautiful. And it could have been a great um, relationship as a, as you yeah. know, friends, but. And in, in the end, it really was much better. Yeah. I mean, she had to fix it, but yeah. <laughs> she had the wrong intentions going into that friendship from the beginning. So that, that is, you don't treat your friends as amusements. <laughs> Hmm. Words so, to live by. Yeah. So this, you know, we were already talking a little bit about, you know, the the class system and, and how that works with, with uh, Emma and, and the people she interacts with. And so obviously, one of the other themes we want to discuss is, you know, that that class system and how it works out. Because there's an interesting line, and I actually pulled this from the online book, because I couldn't get it copied down fast enough. But I think it's almost the same as, if not word for word, it's very close to the sentiment that was in the movie. 
this was her comment about Mr. Martin. When Mr. Martin, who was the actual affection of Har- Harriet Smith, af- Harriet Smith actually liked Mr. Martin, and he's proposed for her marriage. And Harriet is is trying to convince Emma that he's a really good man. And Emma makes this comment about, well, a young farmer, whether on horseback or on foot, is the very last sort of person to raise my curiosity. The omenry are precisely the order of people with whom I feel I can have nothing to do. A degree or two lower and a credible appearance might interest me. I might hope to be of use to their families in some way or other, but a farmer can need none of my help and is therefore in one sense as much above my notice as in every other he is below it. So she's talking about the fact that uh, he he can do for himself. He doesn't need her help. So therefore, since he's a working class man who can, you know, see to his own means, uh, he doesn't need her note. He doesn't need her to help him in any way. So therefore he's beneath above her notice and he's beneath her notice in every way because he's not of the same class of the same class as her so he's he's completely irrelevant to her like a a nobody and that is a really sad way to view people i mean it's like okay i don't need them for anything and they don't need me so therefore they don't exist or they could have just as well don't exist and it it goes back to her self-centered nature yeah but and at the same time, that was a class distinction that, I mean, she was brought up to believe that. To be honest, yep. that, that was that was the social class that she was in. And that's she put it into words what she had been trained to believe. And thankfully, I don't think, I mean, obviously, we still have classes based on wealth. He, even here in the United States, we have the, the very wealthy and then you have the servant class who uh, take care of the wealthy and serve the wealthy. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, the middle class people who work for the wealthy in their factories or their <laughs> stores or whatever. So to be honest, you know, the class system still exists. And I think the lines have been blurred a lot more uh, than they were back then, but it still yeah. exists. Yeah, I agree. And so I think we should take this as a reminder that as Christians, those socials, the, those lines have to be completely gone. I mean, you basically take an eraser to them because in Christ, and here I can easily quote a scripture, Galatians three <laughs> twenty eight: there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, you are all one in Christ, Jesus. So that this is, our, our faith is the great leveler. It, it puts us all on the same social standing. And, and once again, this episode is going to demonstrate why James is my favorite book in the Bible. <laughs> I've had a lot of people ask me about that because I think a lot of people have problems with the book of James because of the whole works and faith situation. But in James, there's the James 2, the whole thing starts out with talking about uh, showing partiality to people. And it's it's something that we have to be careful with as Christians you know, to not let what people are, what their rank in life have to do with how we treat them. Yeah. So in the New King James and the ESV and several other versions of the Bible talk about this as partiality. So if you read in in the beginning of James James 2, it says, you know, to not show partiality. Uh, we're going to read this from the CSV. And this is, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Christ Jesus. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. If you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and you and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, did God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? So, and it goes on from there to talk about, you know, keeping the law and and how all of this has to do with, you know, how we treat each other and and what that means to love your neighbor as yourself and all of that. And we have to be careful in in the church, especially, that we don't show that kind of partiality, that class partiality. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the the class distinctions like we see in in Emma and and we see in uh, 
throughout history, really, uh, mm-hmm. up to modern age. They're a consequence of the fall. People be people. <laughs> um, they're going to... You know they're they're gonna think they're better than each other, and and uh, it's gonna go go around. We just need to we need to focus on the loving part. And I I guess I put a questioning note in here is is modern class discrimination, and I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of financial discrimination in the United States specifically, helped or hindered by social justice efforts, and. Uh, for me, it it always comes down to a question of moderation, self moderation. You know, you can't put it on a on a pedestal and and make it an idol that you value more than your love of Christ. Yeah. Either being, you know, being better than anyone else around you, or fighting those who think they're better than everybody else around you. I think I saw I saw an interesting graphic on Facebook, a meme that was going around that that said that liberals, or I don't know that was the people that are in favor of, of, um, so of social equality, the way that it's phrased mm. today, uh, want everybody to be the same at the finish line, where conservatives want everybody to be the, uh, the same at the starting line. So we want mm. everybody to be able to start the same, but how they finish determines the amount of effort that they put into it, where, having everybody finish the same at the end has to do with holding some back and forcing others forward and handicapping basically. Cause that's what they do in horse races. I don't know how much you know about horse racing, but very little <laughs> in handicap racing. And that's what they actually call it uh, is handicapped racing. Is there is a man who goes over all of the horses entered in a race and he determines based on their race history, uh, how wh- how well they race, and then he distributes weight to the fastest horses. So his goal is to bring everybody to the finish line at the same time. So he handicaps the faster horses by adding more weight to their saddle, and and he lowers the weight on the slower horses, and so they they create this handicapped race so that they're all the same. So in an attempt to bring them all to the finish line at the same time, so that the betters can't bet on who has the best finish history because they're all handicapped yeah. to finish together. And so if you deal with that in real life where you're handicapping people to try and force everybody to finish together, I, I guess to me that doesn't help anybody because it's holding some people back and it's forcing other people to into uncomfortable situations. So I don't know. I think that class discrimination can definitely uh, play a role, but I don't think it's everything, especially in our culture today. I think a lot of it has to do with motivation and what we're trained to be. Because if you're trained to believe that you can't go anywhere, that you can't, if you're raised to think that you're not able, then you don't try. The last theme that I wanted to discuss in this is the portrayal of Christians, because I really feel like this movie is subtly mocking Christianity and it's not in your face to some extent, but the vicar is one character who has a lot to do with that. And what's interesting about that is the vicar in this movie is, is subtly different than the vicar in the 1996 version. How so? In the 1996 version, he's portrayed very much as a buffoon and, and less like a smarmy, uh, womanizer and so he's almost foolish like everything he does is portrayed as very foolish in the original and and this one as you have so uh, nicely noted in our notes he's (laughs) very despicable he's like a womanizer he nearly rapes emma i mean (laughs) in the Uh. carriage so uh she wasn't a stronger character and able to to demand that he put you know let her out I think something bad could have happened in that carriage. And, and, and you know, for me, it wasn't just the way he was treating the women, but the way that he held such contempt and acted on it for Harriet, Harriet mm-hmm. Smith. Yeah. And and I know that was the intent. The whole dance – was that whole thing with the the dancing – 
where he refused to dance with her. Was that in the 96 version? Yes. Okay. That just made me hate the man. Yeah. Uh, And and he's supposed to be the guy responsible for shepherding this flock of uh, believers or Mm – presumed believers. I know that in 19th century England, it was a very different um, landscape of faith. Right. Church attendance was required by law, and it was much more a social thing. And you see it here in in Emma. You see it actually pretty clearly. Yeah. Um, it, the, the first scene in the church, you know, everybody is waiting for the woodhouses to come in and sit down. And then there's a scene later on after the the vicar gets married where his wife sits in the the seat that the woodhouses sit in, which forces the woodhouses back a pew, which forces other people over a pew, which forces mm-hmm. – and everybody is like completely uncomfortable because they're not <laughs> sitting in their, their established places in the church. And I – I think I mean the humor of it is hilarious, but at the same time I'm sitting here thinking, how often are we like that in church when somebody displaces yeah, you from exactly. your spot? <laughs> we get into the habit of sitting exactly in the seventh pew on the left, you know, and <laughs> when when a bunch of regent students come in and sit down, wow. <laughs> but that that uh and you know we we joke about it, but that really is something that that we should avoid doing is getting used to uh or considering that we have our own place in the church mm-hmm. and I think it was one of the one of the geniuses of the way it's portrayed and uh, I presume in the book as well that their seating in the pews was a direct reflection of their social status mm-hmm. and when the vicar's new wife is sitting in the Woodhouse's pew. <laughs> yeah, the the preeminent pew, you know. Yeah. Uh when everybody when they come in, when the Woodhouses come in, it was a, a clear, hey, I am now the most important person in the church moment. Yeah. And uh it it was a an interesting reflection of that. Uh you know, when I was much younger, we would joke about the sitting in the front of the church or the back of the church. Mm-hmm. And the, the front would be for sinners because they need to pay better attention. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but now it, I, and it's probably an age thing as much as it is a denomination thing. It, now it's much more, I need to sit in my spot or so help me. Everything is just going to go wrong. <laughs> And, you know, I do want to point out that we, we do have to be at least in the range where our vision will work. <laughs> <laughs> but what I don't understand is in my church, all the elderly sit all the way in the back and they can't hear anyway. So it's like, yeah. why are you sitting further away? <laughs> it's so they can sleep and get away with it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I liked the whole – and, you know, the, the whole pew and sitting position in our play – it's so small in the the movie, but I I really did enjoy that. But back to the vicar, <laughs> <laughs> that that utterly despicable man. He is exactly the opposite of what a pastor should be. Yeah, what a pastor should be. And I find it interesting because as I think about period fiction, particularly uh, English period fiction. It, it that seems to be a common trait the buffoonery and the the ineptness of which could explain a lot as to what happened to this church in britain i mean yeah, great britain no kidding. i mean well and you think about it you know in the nobility and the, and i get the feeling that this may actually be kind of supposedly the background of this character uh, a lot of nobility they they would pass all of their inheritance to the oldest son so if you had a if you had multiple sons then usually the second son would go into the military and the third son would go into the church i mean that was typically the way it is because military they could make their own fortune the church they didn't have to make a fortune and so i get the feeling that he's probably one of those useless younger sons Mm -hmm. (laughs) who gets no inheritance because of, you know, his place in the family. So he goes into the church because it's just established that that's what you do. If you're the the useless third son, you go into the church. And so he 
he was raised as noble, so he thinks too much of himself, and mm-hmm. he's he's not really dedicated to the church because his calling, he didn't have a real calling to become a pastor. It was just what was expected of him from a, a social standpoint. Yeah, And I think that that, to be honest, happened to the church. I mean, that was that was what was done in that era. And so it would make sense that he's not necessarily a man following a calling. He's just in the church because that was socially expected. You know, I, I think about how careful my denomination that the Presbyterian Church in America is in selection of its elders and deacons and how we go back to scripture to ensure that that our church officers meet the requirements that are laid out. And at the same time, I think about even then, we still have significant tr- trouble within our church regarding the leadership. We have people fall from grace. We have... Uh, arguments about um, Christian identity and all that, I cannot imagine how much worse it would be for a church that placed its vicars uh, based on family position and political appointment. Yeah. Particularly if they're not even using scripture as their guide. And speaking of scripture, I wanted to touch on 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 3, um, which is the uh, antipathy of of what uh, this this guy was, where Paul is instructing Timothy on how to find officers for the church. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer or an elder, he desires noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. And I want to say that we saw almost all the knots in this Alton <laughs> character. Yeah, it's not a pretty picture for the church. I think, to be honest, though, you know, it probably was fairly accurate to that era that the, yeah. these kind of guys led the church. It's sad. sad. Very sad. Yeah. And I think that that was, a, and it still is today, a problem with having the church be a political structure in in Great Britain. And it, it's just sad. I mean, yeah. <laughs> thankfully, we had, you know, Protestant denominations that fled the U- United Kingdom and came here to the States mm. and, and created denominations that were church-led and not government-led. And yep. I strongly appreciate that, the fact that we no longer, I mean, I'm sure there is some, there are some people that are, that go into the church for the wrong reasons, you know, go into leadership of the church for the long, wrong reasons. But I think it's probably easier to get rid of them or to uh, look for a better church because they are out there. Yeah. Thankfully, they are out there. So the the one last thing I wanted to talk about in portraying Christians was there were actually some Christian songs that were part of the, the transitions in this movie. One of them was a very dearly loved and old hymn of the faith, How Firm a Foundation. It dates back to this era. You know, it's an old hymn. And they used it as a transition. And the way they sung it, it's almost like country folk, which is, I mean, of that era. I would, I would call it not country folk of this era, but country folk of that era. And I looked up the the group, like I said, um, and earlier on when we were talking about the music, it's uh, the Carnival Band was the name of the group that was singing it. And mm-hmm. their whimsical way that it is used as a transition makes me think it, they were almost mocking it. And and I don't know that any everybody else would go through the movie and get that impression. When, it, when they first played it, I was like, oh, cool, they're playing a Christian hymn. And... But then the second time they played it, I'm like, are they mocking this hymn? Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't I wouldn't put it above them or beneath them to not to you know, to mock the hymn. I mean, Hollywood yeah. hates Christianity, yeah. so it, I I could definitely see that. I I didn't get the sense while I was watching it, but um, you know, having gone through your notes and and reexamined it, I can definitely see it as a reasonable interpretation of uh a possible motive the same the same way that i i see the whole uh naked backside thing is being hollywood displaying what uh they think we want to see yeah and honestly 
my thought is that they chose this hymn because a firm foundation is exactly what Emma was. Emma and her family was lacking. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I think that I, I would like to think that they weren't going any deeper in meaning than that. Yeah. But uh, somehow I, I suspect you're right. And I, I doubt that they were just leaving it at that. They were probably using it as a little bit of a, a dig. Yeah. Well, I think that's all we have to say about this movie. We, we've hit our time limit, so we might as well uh, wrap up the show. I do want to uh, comment uh, again about our, our, our Patreon status. We do have only three patrons now, and uh, we're, we're not making our monthly goal for support. And so if there is any way that we can convince other people out there to help us keep this podcast going, we'd really appreciate it if you check out patreon.com slash are you just watching and i do want to thank craig hardy peter chapman and stephen brown the second for their faithful giving they have yes they are a blessing to us and we, we really appreciate uh, their continued thank support yeah so and, and i think i mentioned in our last episode but i'll mention it again if if anybody is interested in using paypal as a way to to support us instead of patreon please just let me know and i'll contact you with the information for how to give that way i feel like you know some people might be avoiding patreon because you know it does take quite a bit of fees out so there there are ways uh to give through paypal uh where there aren't as many fees taken out so if something like that sounds interesting to you please contact us and let us know and you can contact us, mm-hmm. number one, by commenting on our show notes, which will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 102. Uh, you can call us at 513-818-2959 and leave a voicemail. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com to give us critiques. Or you could join our Facebook discussion group. That's at areyoujustwatching.com slash community. That'll take you directly to the group and you can ask to join. We will let you in. We haven't kicked anybody out yet, so... <laughs> There, there should be no problem with that. And then, of course, you can also connect with each of us on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at E. Franklin. And I'm on Twitter at Ren Cheple, R-E-N-C-H-E-P-L-E. And we ask that you would subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, because we are on Google and several of the others as well. So we hope that you are listening to us through a subscription, because that way you're getting our episodes as they come out. We hope that you enjoyed this episode, whether or not you have seen this version of Emma. We hope that you listened to this review and enjoyed it. And we hope that you will uh, comment and let us know what you thought of the movie and our review of it. And I pray that everybody is well uh, with the coronavirus going around at the time of this recording. I, you know, I have no clue what the future holds in this country because everything is a total mess and everybody is panicking. But God is God. He is sovereign and he will take care of his people and we can take comfort in him and let everybody else know as they're panicking, the best answer to their fear is Christ. And don't be... Uh, shy and sharing that because we have hope that the rest of the world does not have yeah so uh thank you for listening i'm e franklin i'm tim martin and don't just watch are you just watching as a member of the christian podcast community find more interesting podcasts on theology and christian living at podcast.strivingforeternity.org